This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And the concern I have as someone who's a parent is I hope we get to the 2024 and 2028 elections. And I've never had to say that before. For the first time in my, in my lifetime, I have to consider the possibility because I don't know that we as a nation are demonstrating the capacity to build a consensus around some very core values of democracy. And that might be our undoing. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last two years, we've discussed the attacks on election administration and administrators, from attacks on mail-in ballots to bogus claims of election fraud to the President of the United States pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to steal an election. While just about all of our listeners will know those stories, the attack on local election workers has not had the same attention. From mass resignations and harassment to death threats, the people who actually run our elections are under an unprecedented threat right now. And that's why I'm here with two people who are working to protect the rights of elections workers. I'm excited to welcome back a great friend of Politicology, David Becker. David is the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, a CBS News contributor. And he was the senior trial attorney at the Department of Justice in their Civil Rights Division. David, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Great to see you too, Ron. Thanks for having me. Ben Ginsberg is a nationally recognized political law advocate and compliance expert with nearly four decades of experience in representing participants in the political process. His clients have included political parties, campaigns, members of Congress and state legislatures, PACs, governors, vendors, and donors, and pretty much anybody involved in the political world. He's represented four of the last six Republican presidential nominees, and he's also served as co-chair of the Bipartisan Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Ben, welcome to Politicology. Ron, thank you. Pleasure to be here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's just set the table before we dig into the material today as a way of background. David, you've been on the show a few times, but let's um, give folks a sense of your background and the perspective that you bring here, and then we'll do the same for Ben. Sure. Um, I've been working in elections for about 25 years. I worked in both the Clinton and W. Bush administrations in the Justice Department uh, doing voting rights work in the Civil Rights Division. Spent several years uh, running Pew's elections team um, before I founded the Center for Election Innovation and Research in 2016. And, um, you know, I, I've, prior to about five years ago, a lot of that work was really technical. It was work on things like voter registration systems and cybersecurity and things that election officials were really concerned about. Over the last several years, we've seen um, a shift Um, based on, um, and we use this term too much, but there's no other term to describe it, the unprecedented attacks on democracy that we're seeing now, that we've been seeing now for um, over two years, really, um, and that have uh, really been focused on, in particular, as you mentioned, um, election officials, election workers from, you know, elected secretaries of state down to volunteer poll workers. Um, I and Ben and many others speak to election officials all the time, and they're under siege. They're weary. Um, the The year after a presidential election is supposed to be a relatively quiet time in, in election administration. It's supposed to be a time for recharging and planning. And uh, that's particularly true when there's also redistricting going on, as there was this past year. And they have been 
under uh, a nonstop onslaught of threats and harassment that are actually probably ramping up again a little more. Um, they've not, they're not only continuing, they're probably increasing. And that's been a, a major focus of our work. And I partnered with um, Ben and uh, with Bob Bauer, former Obama White House counsel, to form the Election Official Legal Defense Network, which is really designed to um, assist election officials with legal advice, pairing them with pro bono attorneys who will give them advice, even in some circumstances assist them with um, the threat of criminal prosecutions, frivolous criminal prosecutions that are happening. Ben, how about you? I'd love for you to, you know, I know who you are. You're sort of a legend in Republican politics. And so I'd love for our listeners to understand the the vast uh, experience that you're bringing to this uh, effort and the conversation. So can you sort of summarize what it is you've been doing for the last however many long, <laughs> however many years you've been, you've been doing I'm it? I'm not that a, old, really. <laughs> a sense of this, of this perspective that you're bringing, which sure. I think is unique. Well, my my personal metamorphosis went from being a newspaper reporter for five years between college and law school and going to law school because I just got interested in, in through the reporting I was doing in the practice of law to being a media attorney to really through great serendipity uh, becoming an elections lawyer for the Republican Party. And I've worked for all three Republican national political party committees uh, and uh, since being in private practice from the mid-90s, uh, represented, been fortunate enough to represent Republican candidates and parties. Part of, part of what I did, especially at the national committees, but also outside, was to spend a lot of time in the precincts and working with local candidates and the party structure, including election day operations, which is really – um, a great part of what we're uh, what we're talking about now. I suppose uh, a major moment uh, for me was being co-chair of the Presidential uh, Commission on Election Administration, along with Bob Bauer, in which, and I think this is true for Bob too. We saw the granular side of election administration, so we knew it from the political operative side. Uh, but um, but really got an appreciation for what election administrators do, all the the problems and challenges that David mentioned, um, and we developed a huge amount of respect for elections officials and the jobs that they do, how tough it is, and how dedicated they are. Uh, so uh, in the in the current atmosphere. Uh, it became sort of unnatural for us working with David to want to help out those elections officials who really are worthy of our thanks and praise and support. And hence the the uh, organization we started with David, the Election Official Legal Defense Network. You know, Ben Ben is too humble to say this, and um, but. But Ben and Bob Bauer working together as co-chairs of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, which was 2013 and 2014. Um, and if people need a reminder, it, it came out of uh, President Obama's um, recognition of long lines and other problems that had occurred in 2012. And they approached it in such a truly bipartisan cooperative way and um, really came and listened and learned from election officials in a very humble way. The report that came out of that commission in 2014 – drove so much professionalism in the field. Um, it catalyzed the professionalism that was already happening. And I think what many people don't recognize is thanks to Ben's work and Bob Bauer's work, um, the, the professionalism in election administration is at its highest point in American history right now. And it's unfortunate that so many think the exact opposite because election officials are incredibly professionalized right now and um, bonded to a calling regardless of their personal political views. Let's start with a big opening question then. What is the story of elections in America in 2022? More contentious than we've ever seen it. You now have, through all the, the bad things that happened in the 2020 election, 30% of the population not believing in the accuracy of elections. And that's been shown in, in a number of, of polls that have been taken. That is a really dangerous situation for a democracy. 
Now, the fact that there has been no evidence produced to back up the charges, and so it's become really uh, threats and intimidation and uh, kind of anything goes in comments idea, that makes this election um, a truly important one and uh, one in a difficult situation. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think what we're seeing is the the more and more pressure applies applied to the crucible of democracy and elections in the United States. And when you see, um, this is a term Ben has coined, weaponized poll watchers, you've mm. seen, you see um, states kind of weakening the guardrails and boundaries around democracy in some areas, particularly in the um, in the voting process and in the post-election process. Um, it it lays the foundation for some potentially um, unstable behavior um, that could go from chaos and confusion and doubt about the outcomes to even something much, much worse. Let's talk about the election official Legal Defense Network and how it came to be. Um, can you share the moment when each of you said – you know the climate. The climate these local officials are facing is dire, and I really need to do something about it. Yeah, Bob and I were talking about the general state of play and the many reports of intimidation of elections officials. And I think what worried us the most is that so many were, first of all, being threatened, and the somewhat natural reaction to that was was leaving as election administrators, creating a great gap in knowledge. Uh, in, in what would be a crucial job in a crucial time. Uh, there were a number of states that were discussing passing laws that could criminalize basically election workers for doing their jobs. Uh, a couple of them actually have passed uh, laws like that. I suspect re- depending on the results of 2022, there could be attempts in other states as well. So it was talking about that phenomenon uh, that we decided to form EOLDN and then cast around for someone to help us out with that. And David was uh, a natural choice because we'd known him for years and knew uh, the Center for Election Innovation and Research. And um, the partnership was born. And you've been thinking about this for a long time, David. So this was a a natural uh, evolution. Yeah, I would say, I mean, we, we had been in communication and talking about this quite a bit. This is Ben and Bob's brainchild. Um, if people look back in June of 2021, there was a piece they wrote in the New York times that really laid this out. And I had been working through, um, through my, my work, uh, talking with election officials and been hearing many of the same things. Um, and, uh, it, it was, it was a natural pairing. Um, and it's, uh, it's really important for a couple of reasons. One, there are individual election officials who actually very much need this legal assistance. In some cases, even criminal defense legal assistance because frivolous prosecutions are being contemplated. But beyond that, election officials writ large really appreciate knowing that someone has their back. Um, they felt alone out there. Um, the, the, the best case scenario for an election official historically is anonymity. Um, you never get a headline on the Wednesday after an election that everything went great. Um, and uh, Ben knows better than anyone else. Um, you know, you look. You, you know, the worst case scenario is uh, you know Teresa Lepore in Florida, two thousand, mm. where many people still know her name, even though she's been out of elections for years, and she was just a county election administrator. Um, so the the fact that you know they're not going to get rich and famous in their best case scenario, they're not going to be held up. Um, as as heroes, even though, quite frankly, the work they did in 2020 was heroic, um, they uh, they just want to know they're not going to their their lives aren't going to be made a constant misery, in spite of the fact that they did their job so well, and that's what's happening right now. So um, I, I think the fact that p- people with the stature of Ben and Bob Bauer have have their backs is is really important. Big deal. So can you talk about the goals and what success looks like? And how put together is the whole operation, and are we ready for 2022? Uh, thanks to David's help, 
the operation is put together, although it's it's one of an operation where you never quite know how much you're going to need because you don't know how great the threat is. So we are constantly in the process of recruiting uh, lawyers to be part of the network uh, should we need them. So we, we will definitely continue with our recruitment efforts as well as our outreach to elections officials to tell them if they run into this problem, uh, we're there to help them. Um, I think what success looks like is probably you don't read about things in the paper that are happening to elections officials. Mm -hmm. That um, I thought this through my years of private practice and certainly think so now that the best legal representation you can provide somebody is to stop something from from happening. So uh, in the metric of success, I I think that's probably a warm glow in all of our hearts. Um, And if there are uh, more publicly visible uh, representations will be there too. Um, that may attract more attention, uh, but but n- not the goal. Yeah, the goal is to stop things from from ever being brought against elections officials. And okay. if I can just add, there, there's mm-hmm. if I suspect there's more than a few lawyers listening to this yeah. uh, this podcast, um, and any lawyers who are interested, we are very actively recruiting lawyers. You can go on to eoldn.org, um, and uh, it's very simple. There's a button right on the homepage that says lawyers and puts you where you can volunteer. You can also email us through that website. There's an email address, and if you're a, a solo practitioner or you are a member of a big firm, um, doesn't matter. We'd love to um, include you in our database, and uh, that assists us in really our major goal when an election official comes to us, which is being responsive and pairing them with a lawyer as soon as possible. I uh, I have someone in mind right now who, who I'm going to send your way, who's a soon-to-be former DOJ prosecutor who I think would be perfect. That's great. Right. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Moving into private practice. And you know who you are. I know he's listening. <laughs> so, okay, David, you touched on something that I think is really important and actually is a is a segue to some of the, the other stuff I want to talk about, which is that the mere existence of this network helps you in recruiting and it also helps good people to stay in the positions that we need them to stay in, right? And not to leave and to cave to the threats and the intimidation that we know are are coming their way. So what happens when they do leave? And why is that part of the, I, I'm going to say Republican strategy, but it's really Steve Bannon's strategy. And we'll, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, what happens when good people leave the posts of the election machinery? Well, I think we first have to recognize what I said earlier, which is that we have um, the highest level of election professionalism we've ever had. Um, The community of election officials is very tight, not just within states, but across states. And um, that's thanks to decades of work. It's thanks to the work that Bob and Ben did with the Presidential Commission on Election Administration and other things. We are in danger of losing a generation's worth of professional expertise. Elections are hard to run. They're very esoteric. They're not like anything else we do. Um, People often ask, why can't we vote on our phones because we bank on our phones? Banking and voting are very, very different because of the secret ballot. It's very – you cannot take a ballot and we don't want to take a ballot and trace it back to the original person to verify it. Um, And elections have – hundreds of checks and balances at every stage of the process to ensure they have integrity, that that integrity is transparent, and that's evolved over time, and that's thanks to these professional election officials. So when we lose a generation of that professional talent, that sets us back a little bit. And then there's the second part of this that could be really dangerous, which is what does that get replaced by? And we're already seeing a handful, it's a very small number, of election officials who've kind of fallen victim to the disinformation and have been part of the um, election denial movement um, kind of allow themselves to be co-opted and allow even given access to voting technology and other things that they shouldn't be doing for a lot of really good reasons. Um, and, uh, and they gain some notoriety for that. Some of them are running for secretaries of state right now, um, even while they're under indictment. And so losing talent is one thing, and then you compound it with possibly – um, corrupt individuals replacing them, and it's a recipe for 
very serious concern. Ben, how have you seen the threats and harassment change going from primary season now going to general election season? And and even more broadly, what do you make of this movement within the party that you have spent your entire career working in and 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 assisting? I mostly think it's a dangerous development for the future of the Republican Party. I mean, we've talked about the the aspects for the country and for the democracy. But in terms of the Republican Party uh, doing a combination of trying to take over neutral professional election administration jobs with partisans who may not reflect uh, the, the vote of the people, as well as an effort to pass a series of laws in the states which I think send the message that the Republican Party is exclusive and not a broad-based party. Um, and instead of uh, trying to win over various groups with good conservative policies, uh, it's an attempt to exclude people from voting. Now, I don't think it works, um, which is sort of uh, a double bad moment mm. for a political party because not only do you alienate uh, future voters and really the growth in voters in the country, but you come across as mean-spirited and exclusionary to current Republican voters. There should have been a lesson taken from the 2020 elections and Donald Trump's loss because if you go to the key battleground states, it was moderate Republicans who voted all Republican down ballot. Republicans did great in congressional legislative state elections in the last cycle, but yet Donald Trump lost. So they were voters abandoning the Republican Party because of Trump. And so that, I, I think the whole process is going to have really a bad long-term effect on the Republican Party and really for the party that represents conservative governance in the country, um, which I certainly support. David, there was a um, uh, a story you tweeted about out of Milwaukee in late May uh, when a Republican member of the Wisconsin Election Commission, Dean Knudsen, abruptly resigned because of the Republicans' continued focus on Trump's claims that the election was stolen. Knudsen said, I cannot be effective in my role representing Republicans on the commission, end quote. And I wonder when it comes to... Uh, you know, congressional races and state ledge races, you know, there's a push to get people to vote for Democrats to protect the institutions of democracy. What are the limits of that when having Republicans is baked into the system? Well, first of all, having both parties have a role in election administration is a good thing. We have to acknowledge that. It is really important that there be Republicans of principle like Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, like members of the Maricopa County Board of um, a Board of Supervisors in Arizona, and like Dean Knudsen in Wisconsin, who are working based on some consensus principles about democracy that um, that professional professionalism and election administration should be supported. That there should, there should be transparent um, checks and balances that everyone can view and confirm, and that the winner of the election, the person who gets the most votes, should take office, um, uh, which seems pretty basic, but we have some disagreement on that right now. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, in Wisconsin, for instance, just so your listeners know, uh, the, there's a Wisconsin election commission. That's a fairly new development pushed by the Wisconsin legislature, which is majority Republican in 2016, 2015 and 2016. And, uh, there are three members of each party that sit as commissioners, three Democrats and three Republicans, and they oversee the professional staff of the Wisconsin election commission. And Dean Knudsen was, um, one of the Republicans. And it's unfortunate that, that he was having pressed upon him his role as representing the Republican party. Mm. That's actually not the role of the commissioners. The role of the commissioners is to represent the voters to represent democracy, to represent election workers, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And Dean was a very, very good example of that. Um, and uh, it's, I, I think it's very, um, I think it's a, it's an unfortunate example of what we're seeing in so many other places, the pressures being placed on election officials. And 
to be perfectly honest, it's probably primarily Republican election officials who are feeling this pressure. Mm-hmm. I can tell you of the requests we've got into the election official legal defense network, it's more often than not Republicans who are feeling some of the pressures. When I've gone and spoken at election official conferences in Florida and Colorado and California and Arizona and other states, um, it, more often than not, when election officials come up to me afterwards, um, it's Republicans. Um, and uh, they're in some cases at their wits end. And it's a shame when we're losing people of integrity who just no longer can deal with it anymore because they and their families are paying a very, very steep price for basic um, principled governance. Yeah. Ben, I wonder what you think the consequences are going to be if supporting a lie about the election being stolen is is, is now the litmus test for uh, being a Republican on these committees. Um, you know, as a, speaking as a former campaign guy, right? Um, that's that's extremely useful from a from a tactical perspective, right? Um, and it doesn't feel like something that's dissipating. It feels like it's something that's a trend that's growing. Um, so you think over time uh, this is going to backfire, but right now it feels like the trend is growing. So what do you think the consequences are in the short term um, with with this litmus test in place for being a Republican? Right, it means you have to deny the twenty twenty election. Yeah, it, it's interesting looking at the Republican primaries. It does very much feel like an ante mm-hmm. to to get into the game as a Republican candidate for the primaries. Now, of course, the actual record of what's happening in the elections is different. Mm-hmm. Brad Raffensperger's uh, success in the Republican primary, avoiding a runoff, um, would tell you that it is not as great as it's sort of been portrayed as being. Um, I think a number of candidates have kind of done a two-step around it. Mm. Uh, and so I think it it's going to limit, or at least for 2022, is probably limited uh, Republicans who might otherwise want to get into the race. But I mean, look, the the actual tale of how that comes out is is going to be governed by the 2022 elections. And it is a Democrat in the White House and the party in power does badly in the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. And honestly, from a Republican perspective, uh, I, I am confused about what the Democrats think they're doing because they're not presenting a particularly attractive alternative. And in fact, this squabbling within the Democratic family is really going to result in rewarding Republicans for bad behavior. Yeah. So I think the realistic assessment of at least the way the midterms right look right now is that Republicans are not going to pay a great price for this at all in 2022. And it may take the presidential election in 2024 or even 2028 to sort of wash this through the the body politic. Yeah, David, you're nodding. And I know we didn't come here to talk about campaign strategy, but that's this is something we talk about a lot on the show about, and sometimes you don't want to hear it, but um, it is amazing that, uh, that the Democrats can lose some of these races. Yeah. I mean, we're, Ben mentioned it earlier, being, you know, as a Republican, being critical of his own party for the lack of a Big Ten strategy. And um, certainly... The Democrats could be viably accused of a similar problem. And um, I think one of the things that kind of the traditional party campaign strategists might forget as they try to raise money and gin up interest amongst their base is that this is not a normal moment in American history. This is a crisis moment. Um, we uh, – the, the guardrails of democracy have been eroded Intentionally, they've been attacked, they've been weakened, and um, and so we've we've got to strengthen those first so that we can have those legitimate policy disagreements within those guardrails of democracy. We are not having them right now, and the concern I have as someone um, who, who's a parent is I hope we get to the twenty twenty four and twenty twenty eight elections, and I've never had to say that before. Um, and that's not to say that I'm predicting 
disaster. I'm not. I mean, I don't think it's likely that the, that 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 the union will dissolve. But um, w- for the first time in my in my lifetime, I have to consider the possibility because I don't know that we have a, as a nation are demonstrating the capacity to build a consensus around some very core values of of democracy, and that might be our undoing. I was hoping that I could get you to say that at by the end of this episode and you just beat me to it because it's a chilling thing to say and it's chilling because people people need to feel that. Like that, that is that is extremely this is, this is a five alarm fire. Um and I know we're talking in very quiet tones in a you know in a well lit studio but this is this is like light your hair on fire territory. So I want to talk about the assault on Ben disagrees. No, I, oh, I, I okay. don't necessarily disagree. I, okay. I, I do think that the institutions of the country held in 2020. Yes, of course. And I think that they will in 2022 and yeah. in 2024. I was the, the farm alarm, five alarm fire analogy yeah. got me again to thinking about the Democrats. Ah. And it is a five alarm fire in the House. And the Democrats are like scrubbing out the kitchen sink because they don't like the dirty kitchen sink. Forget the kitchen sink. Deal with the house. Get your act in order to be able to save the house. This is Ben. This is that's <laughs> I love a, that. that might be a better analogy. I, the way I've always talked about it lately, and I don't want people to despair. I mean, there are things yeah. we are working on and oh, doing yeah, here, sure. but. Um, we, but you need uh, to be motivated. Yeah, our, the, if democracy is a patient, it's in the ER flatlining right now. And this is not the time to discuss what that patient's diet and exercise regimen should be. Let's get the patient out of the ER. And um, I don't think that either party has really focused on that. Okay, so let's talk about this coordinated assault on the guardrails, which is how I'll put it. There was a special report out um, recently in Politico by Heidi Persbilla, about how Republicans are using rules designed to provide political balance among poll workers in an attempt to get party-trained volunteers in position to challenge voters at Democratic majority polling places and connecting those poll workers with local attorneys and create a network of party-friendly district attorneys to block vote counting in certain districts. So there's a lot to unpack in this story, and I, I think both of you are familiar with it. Um, but, but I want to say a couple things first, which is, and I mentioned this on a recent news roundup of politicology. First of all, there uh, this is not just in Michigan. They just happen to have recordings from conversations within Michigan, uh, but they're doing this everywhere. Um, second, this is a departure or, or an escalation, really, I would say, from what has been common practice in campaign politics on both sides for a long time to recruit volunteers as poll watchers. We need to use these words very carefully, poll watchers, to challenge potential fraud during the voting process and the counting process. Um, And this is also potentially the first time we've seen real-world fruit of Steve Bannon's precinct strategy, which has been much talked about. And now, you know, we're we're seeing manifestation of this. So, Ben, can you describe what that strategy is, Bannon's precinct strategy, and why— what we're talking about happening in Michigan, this this big political story, why this is different from what the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have been doing for a long time when it comes to election. Watchers. Well, the, the rhetoric is certainly different. Uh, I've spent a number of decades putting together, working in, being part of Election Day operations. It has been the aspirational goal of both parties to have people in every polling place to look for fraud and abuse and cheating and illegal voters. Um, We spent 38 years, I spent 38 years doing that under the belief, which I do understand that if you have a lot of 95 to 5 precincts, something wrong is going on. So the Republican Party has historically had poll watchers in every one of the contentious precincts and certainly had the right to do it. And that was a good thing because having your people in a polling place, if they find problems, you got to deal with the problems. If they don't, that helps validate the elections. 
What was categorically different about Donald Trump's rhetoric and Steve Bannon's strategy in all this is that it ignored the facts on the ground. Say more. Right? Uh, I mean, I, I got off the Trump bus because having spent 38 years looking for this, you have to be honest about the evidence. And the evidence was never there that there was this sort of wholesale fraud and inaccurate results. May have been the belief never there by the evidence. Remember that in 2000, Donald Trump bragged uh, about having a 50,000-person poll watcher army. Of course, we should take him at his word on that. So they never produced any evidence of fraud as adjudicated in, in all the courts and all the recount con and contests that they brought. So this is different in the fact that you've got tapes of it. Um, I'm not sure it is different from the aspirational goals that have always been there. And those aspirational goals were often carried out in terms of having number of people. Now, there is one major difference to be aware of, which is that a number of states have allowed um, the weaponizing of poll workers. Which is different from poll watchers. Which is different from poll watchers. Poll workers are, uh, at least the way the, the laws are drawn up, uh, part of the election process. They are not advocates for one party or another, nor reporting to one party or another. So if there is the possibility that there can be disruptions in polling places with weaponized poll watchers challenging a lot of voters, slowing down the process, trying to, to kick people out and just causing chaos in the polling place. What's a little bit unclear to me in the Republican thinking is what's the end game here? Because if you hold up the results of an election that you don't like, you hold up the election for literally everybody. Uh, if, if there are flawed ballots for the governor's race in Wisconsin, that affects every member of the assembly in the state senate who gets elected, all the congressional races, all the statewide races, so that there will be Republican candidates who might be far ahead in 2022 elections who will not be able to take office either if uh, the voting process gets so bogged down uh, through this Republican plan. So I, I, I'm not, I understand the theater of it and I understand uh, what they may be trying to do, but the end game doesn't work. So one of the one other thing that I want to mention about the story is that they're investing in, and this caught my eye when I read the story because this was sort of novel, uh, having been on the ground for EDO, election operations. Um, they're investing in infrastructure uh, like a website that is powered by Zendesk to allow these poll workers to live chat with party lawyers on election day. Now, party lawyers like people who are working for the Republican Party or for the campaigns uh, in real time, talking to the poll workers who are supposed to be administering the elections in a nonpartisan manner. That was the thing that caught my eye, which is which is not only sort of novel, but it's also, it's also innovative and genius and efficient and would well, be effective. It, except that's been done by cell phones before. Yes. I mean, that was the theory. So, yes, it's But, but not different. the workers, not I the think, nonpartisan workers. I think workers. we have well, to separate that. Yeah, that's— Well, but, but that's—that has always—should have been the case, probably was not always the case, that anybody in a—the poll workers are assigned by the parties— in other words, the, the local governments pick them from lists provided by the party. It would not be accurate to say that no poll worker in history has ever called back to a party operation. Now, this tries to, to put it in a much more formal structure, but it's happened before. Fair. And I, I just want to put this into context. I mean, first of all, I mean, poll workers, the people who are actually managing the influx of voters and facilitating them casting their ballot. Um, in some places, as Ben mentioned, they are they are picked from lists provided by the parties. In many places, they are not. They're volunteers. Um, and in most places, if not all, they take an oath 
and their work is on behalf of the voters and the election office, not on behalf of a political party. And um, and that's very important. That's where their duties div- diverge from the duties of poll watchers, who are definitely there representing their party and observing and are entirely appropriately talking to the party lawyers and everything else. And and by the way, Ben mentioned this, this is really important. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Having both parties have observers in polling places, in counting locations. Um, I've been, as a DOJ observer, in rooms where they were counting uh, absentee and mail ballots, and there were observers from both parties there. And everyone was respectful. Everyone was taking notes. Everyone was well-trained. That's a very good very good thing for all the reasons Ben mentioned. When it, when it goes into something different, when it moves into something that appears to be about interference in the process, potentially intimidation in the process, potentially um, creating a pool of individuals who might be used to cast doubt on a process that there's no evidence to suggest there should be doubt about. That's when it, when it reaches a concern level. And I think um, I'm, I, 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 like Ben, am not quite sure whether this is going to come about because there's always this, um, this, this plan. Um, but I am concerned whether it's nationwide or just even in a few precincts that if something like this does come about where people are trained to view election workers as election officials as the enemy, um, not as their fellow citizens trying to facilitate votes, if they're um, they're and un- not particularly well trained, so they see things that are entirely appropriate, but they misunderstand as some kind of nefarious activity, which I think is likely. We've seen this in 2020. Um, that could raise problems. Yeah, and and there's an important other point, which is um, Republicans seem to be thinking that this plan that they have will take place in a vacuum. And that's just not the case. Mm. Now that they couldn't help themselves but bragging about it publicly in, you know, six months before the election, um, I can't believe that the Democrats will just sit there and sort of say, oh, that's terrible. And there are counter plans that you can develop quite easily to what the Republicans are doing. One of the phenomena that I was always aware of in doing party operations was that there were an awful lot more people with allegiance to the Democratic Party, even if they were calling themselves neutral observers Mm. in polling places, and that Republicans were almost always outnumbered Mm. in polling places by people affiliated with Democrats, even if they were operating under a C3 nonprofit charter, so that you know which precincts Republicans are probably targeting. And that just means you will have a small army of very over-caffeinated lawyers in <laughs> polling places. So that I'm not sure that the the end result to worry about the most is that there will be chaos in some polling places. And again, that will damage Republican candidates on the ballot ultimately as much as Democratic candidates. Okay, so – uh, I'm I'm really curious to know what you think is the worst case scenario to worry about, um, because I think David, one of the things we've talked about before is the the you know the the one of the most pernicious effects of the big lie, right, is that it simply casts doubt on the election process itself and creates an opportunity for chaos and for people to claim all kinds of things, right, regardless of the evidence. Um, that's that's one of the most, uh, you know, lasting, uh, effects. So, and, so yeah. Yeah. And very specifically, and Ben yeah. mentioned this 30% of the Republic, 30% of the country, which is over half of the Republican primary electorate right now seems to believe that any election that Republicans don't win or their candidate doesn't mm-hmm. win is by definition fraudulent. And when you cannot process the idea as in a democracy. A citizen cannot process the idea in a f- democracy that's split almost evenly 50-50 as ours is, that their candidate might lose. We're in a really dangerous place as a democracy. Yeah. Yeah. So is that the, is that the worst case outcome, Republicans refusing to lose? Well, I think the worst case outcome is uh, so much doubt being cast on an election that you can't determine winners and, and create a government. Mm. 
So I, I, I do think that disruption in the polling place and then a failure to reflect the popular vote in the certification of candidates are probably the, the two worst scenarios. Also, in one of these taped meetings, uh, a, a Republican Party official discussed their plans to build a national network of DAs, of district attorneys, uh, to create a legal trap for Detroit clerk Janice Winfrey. David, can you can you describe that trap, how it could work, if it could work? Well, I think one of the problems we have, and again, Ben alluded to this earlier, is we don't have a traditional situation where there were we have a very close election and there are a few relatively normal irregularities that might put the outcome of the election in doubt. And a good example of this is, of course, Florida 2000, where the margin was very narrow. You know, the Minnesota Senate race in 2008, where the margin was even narrower. And what we're seeing right now in Pennsylvania with the um, Senate primary, where the margin um, is almost 1,000 votes, which is a pretty wide margin but um, in recount world, but, um, but still, you know, worth letting the process play out, as, by the way, it is playing out well in Pennsylvania as it should. Um, But here we've got the exact opposite happening. People unhappy with the outcome without any evidence of wrongdoing, trying to lay traps for individuals, um, and often threatening um, criminal prosecution, investigation. They talk about convening grand juries. They talk about issuing subpoenas, where even if ultimately that doesn't happen, the threat weighs so heavily on election officials, again, who are not doing this because they're getting rich and famous, um, that ultimately it chases them out of office. And uh, whether it's in Detroit and Wayne County, Michigan, or whether it's in Fulton County, Georgia, or whether it's in Harris County, Texas, or Maricopa County, Arizona, it doesn't really matter. If if there are um, corrupt um, uh corrupt uh, members of law enforcement who fall prey to these lies. And we've seen some of this happen in places like Racine County, Wisconsin, um, and threaten election officials um, with arrest. Even if that arrest doesn't come about, Mm -hmm. the damage is often done. Yeah. Especially if it makes all kinds of headlines. Right. Right. That's 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 one of the one of the most dangerous things. But but let's play out what'll happen in polling places. That this story has appeared at this point uh, provides a lot of notice. I mean, we're talking about it here. That guarantees that there will be lots of observers in all the polling places. Um, Many jurisdictions, I think prudentially, will say, you know what, we're going to be as transparent as possible. We want cameras all over our accounting centers, which I think is a good thing. Um, And there will be more public windows on the activities that take place in these polling places. This is not going to be a free shot, no matter um, no matter what's said in, in these articles. And that's, I think, the important sort of saving grace of all of this. So, so in other words, our, our, uh, our civic immune system is going to kick in in order to counteract the— Yeah. Yeah. I rarely disagree with Ben, okay. but I'm going to disagree with him just a little <laughs> bit here. Um, I think back to 2020 and what was happening at the TCF Center in um, in Detroit, where they were counting mail ballots. And within the TCF Center, which is a very large counting facility, there were literally hundreds of observers from both parties and both presidential campaigns in that room. And their presence there did not stop hundreds of people who were Trump supporters coming and saying, stop the count, stop the count. In other places, they said, continue the count. They couldn't really get their, their stories straight. But, um, and, and the facts became somewhat irrelevant, that they had hundreds of trained people in there watching what was going on, and they literally tried to break into the room. They were pounding on the doors and pounding on the windows and, and making the, uh, the election workers who were working very late into the night feel unsafe. Um, I, I do worry a little bit. It's good to get notice of these things. It's good that the adversarial process works out so that both political parties can prepare. Um, I I don't know that um, the answer to a bad guy with observation is a good guy with observation. Um, I worry that that might 
increase the pressure in the crucible of these places. And um, there are very passionate people on both sides and what might happen. And that's an additional thing we need to prepare for. But I do believe, like Ben, in in the value of of the kind of adversarial observation process and how important that is. And, and I think we'd agree that it came as something of a surprise in 2020 when people showed up. Not going to be a surprise in 2022. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, we should note um, a DNC spokesperson said that they train poll watchers to ensure every eligible voter gets cast a ballot, but that neither the national party nor the state parties train poll workers. They helped recruit poll workers in 2020 to cover the gaps caused by the pandemic, but they never conducted trainings with them, and they aren't currently recruiting poll workers. So whether there's other things going on behind the scenes or whether they will now begin to do more things behind the scenes, uh, one one would hope so. And and we should be clear again, with the poll workers, whether they originated from party lists or just as volunteers, they are appropriately trained by the election offices and their responsibility is to those election offices, regardless of, of where they originated from. Um, and by the way, that is that is ninety nine point nine 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 percent the way it always That's, works. I mean, right. I mean, so many Republicans and Democrats who give of their time working on election day is not easy. It is a sixteen hour day. Uh, you're getting if you're getting paid at all, you're getting paid maybe a couple hundred dollars. And um, our nation really relies upon these, um, I mean, patriotic citizens doing this duty and doing it as well as they have. My grandparents used to do it. I, I remember. I mean, I, it, was a, it was a ritual. Yeah. Okay. What have we not touched on that you both spend a lot of time, especially lately, thinking about, worrying about, working on? What are the things that are, you know— currently on your mind? Well, I'm animated about the fact that 30% of the electorate doesn't believe in the outcome of elections. And I think that's the truly pernicious thing. And what we're doing uh, on the the help to the elections officials is really, really important. But uh, I think we all came to realize that that was treating the symptoms of of the problem and not really getting at the root cause, which is this tremendous diversion within the electorate. Um, The second major project that we have at the Elections Official Legal Defense Network is one that's community engagement in the sense that um, we will have a, a, a number in 2022 pointing towards 2024 of sessions in the most contentious communities in which we will attempt to bring together the pillars of the community, uh, business leaders, religious leaders, educators, heads of civic organizations. Grass tops. Grass tops. uh, Into a room, those people need to cover the entire political spectrum. There need to be election, people who have doubts about elections. And we'll have that group, the pillars of the communities, meet with the elections officials. And uh, in that face-to-face interaction, we hope that, number one, there will be a greater knowledge of the safeguards in the elections that David mentioned, and also develop uh, a group of community leaders who will be advocates on a very local level for the accuracy of elections after uh, really being able to kick the tires of the election system to to see how accurate it is. Um, I, I think we came to that as a project of EOLDN, um, seeing how poisonous this debate is on the national level, that people just aren't talking to each other and that uh, the, the parties are so siloed on this. And I think it's incumbent on all those addressing the problem to not sort of cast off the 30 percent, but to understand better what their concerns are and to actually have discussions uh, about that. And so that's that's the second, I think, major piece of what has to be done. David, what's on your mind? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that, that, that strikes, I know, uh, ben and Bob and I is um, there's often a, an idea 
out there that litigation will save us. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhat understandable because Ben was talking about institutions holding before, and the judiciary was an institution that held remarkably well under pressure in 2020. I mean, that, that we, we should give tremendous credit to judges across the political spectrum who held everyone to their evidentiary standards that were necessary and, and found unanimously that there was no evidence. Including Trump-appointed judges. Yes. Plenty of them. Yes. Yeah. Um, so to give all credit to the judiciary, they deserve it. Um, but litigation, um, and I say this as a former litigator, Ben's a litigator, um, litigation's the, the last strategy. It's the last chance. Um, it means all other strategies, legislations, uh, working with community leaders and others has failed. And uh, I think that's why this community engagement that Ben is talking about is so important, engaging with election professionals and members of um, corporate citizens and uh, faith leaders and others in the community who might not necessarily understand why or how the elections have integrity and don't have the tools necessary and don't have the relationships and network where multiple people have each other's backs. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone expects corporations um, to go out there on their own and suffer repercussions, which we're seeing in places like Florida, of course. Um, it'd be better if we could provide a support network for corporations and the people who make them up, just like we provide a support network for election officials, where we give them the tools necessary to say, no, 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 actually – People, you know, there's uh, there were not millions of illegal votes, and here's how we know why. And the machines didn't change the outcome, and here's how we know why. And uh, they don't have those tools because, unlike Ben and I, they don't do that every day. That's what we do. Um, it's a um, and and to be able to provide them with those tools and give them confidence that, you know, there's even in close elections, there's ways to resolve this, and also to strengthen the boundaries of the rule of law. I think underlying a lot of um, a lot of the sore loserism mm -hmm. that we see right now is a contempt for the rule of law. Mm -hmm. um, that's why you see so many of the claims being made on social media, you know, for $30 a pop to see um, uh, films that are nothing more than a large grift, um, rather than someone actually presenting this evidence to a law enforcement agency or taking it to court and saying, scrutinize this evidence, we think it will uh, it will withstand scrutiny. Uh, they don't have evidence that will withstand even, even surface scrutiny. And so I think engaging leaders in the, in the community is going to be important and um, an important element of restoring those guardrails of democracy. Uh, I know Bob Bauer is not with us today, but I'm just curious, your colleague, counterpart, what, what would he say if you were here about the things that he spends a lot of time thinking about and and what is it that you guys have bonded over when it comes to this work oh this will be good by the way is, there, there's nothing <laughs> bob bauer will like more than ben ginsburg speaking for I mean, him. he's not here to yeah, defend himself is, so it's yeah. all yours <laughs> well look bob and i um have been on opposite sides of many a contentious issue since the first house recount we did for the House Administration Committee in 1982. Much, much forgotten by many people. Mm. Um, but we were on opposite sides throughout the years on many, many things. We could always talk to each other, and we always did. And it, um, as David will attest, tends to be sort of a um, oh, witty repartee. Yeah, I, I call it a shtick, <laughs> but yes. I mean, it is. It is a little bit of a shtick. And it is, but, 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 it's, but it's good. But, but. Bob and I um, have managed to have this wonderful partnership over these uh, issues. Because, although we will disagree on many a policy, we do agree on the system and the strength of the system and the importance of preserving the system. So uh, I, I think to answer your question, he would um, take a different point of view of some of my observations about the Republican Party and the weaknesses of the Democratic Party. Uh, but in terms of being certain that the people at the core of the democracy and the electoral system, who are the elections officials, are protected to be able to do their mm -hmm. jobs as the callers of balls and strikes yeah. is of paramount importance for being able to give assurances to the country that elections are accurate. 
Yeah. I, I, can I yeah. just say, yeah, I, can I, can, yeah. I can attest to that. I mean, there's often in today's world amongst the election denial wing of the Republican Party, uh, anytime anyone stands up for the reality of the integrity of elections, they get labeled a rhino regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum. And I can attest Ben Ginsburg hasn't become a liberal Democrat overnight. <laughs> um, uh, Bob Bauer hasn't looked at the dysfunction in Congress and become a conservative Republican overnight. Um, they have policy disagreements, but like in the best tradition of our democracy, um, they they have a core set of principles about our institutions and about um, our democracy that take precedence and allow them to have civil discussions and disagreements on other elements of policy. And uh, one of the things we've lost, I think, over the last couple of years um, is uh, is a recognition of how many people with whom we might disagree on some elements of policy that we share those common principles with. Um, and that, you know, when someone like Liz Cheney um, stands up courageously for the guardrails of democracy and um, at, at great political price to herself, um, it is – it, it might be might feel good to sanctimoniously if you disagree with her on policy to say yeah but she voted for the Iraq War or whatever, rather than to be grateful for the fact that there is a large core of leaders across the political spectrum who are standing for those principles. Okay, there are a lot of folks who've now been listening to us for about an hour and they're wondering what they can do. What can they do? Because I mean this is this is alarming and they should be alarmed. Right. Um, we know you need lawyers. There are plenty of lawyers listening and we'll link to where they can sign up. But if you're an ordinary citizen who votes, um, is there a role to be played here? Is there, is there some volunteer connection? Is there, is there something that individuals can be doing right now? Absolutely. Um, to, to first answer it from an EOLDN mm -hmm. perspective, um, we do want representatives of communities at sessions. And so we're interested in hearing from people who believe they live in a jurisdiction that's particularly contentious and to get recommendations on who should be in the room. In the larger sense of what people can do, um, it goes back to what David said, they should get involved in the process. It is really, really important to have people of goodwill and true principles in the polling places helping out. It's really important for their home communities to be able to have poll watchers and poll workers who are involved in the process, um, who will give some time on election day and early voting periods to help out and ensure that the vote is accurate and fair. Yeah, I I can't I, I can't stress that enough. The um, the first thing I'd recommend is a volunteer to be a poll worker, a poll worker in particular, and that's particularly true if you're a Republican in a heavily blue area or you're a Democrat in a heavily red area. Go and see how the how the system works, and what one of the great phenomenon we've seen. And this I, I think uh, Ben and Bob saw this during the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Once you see everything that goes in behind the scenes on the process and you learn the process, it's really hard to be skeptical about that process. Mm -hmm. I mean, mistakes happen. Errors happen. They're, uh, they're usually one-offs. They're correctable. There's mitigations that can take place. But it's really remarkable the transformation of people who, who become poll workers often, um, uh, often experience. Um, secondly, I'd really encourage people to get out of their silos and, um, it is very easy to fall back during this really contentious time into the comfort and warmth of hearing things that feel, that, that feel good, that make you feel good about yourself, that make you feel as if you're right. And to kind of expand out into, um, reality-based uh, viewpoints that may not you may not agree with. Um, if you're a Democrat, there are a lot of reality-based conservative Republicans who have something interesting to say and that you might still disagree with, but that's that's the beauty of America. And if you're a Republican, similarly with, with Democrats. Um, and lastly, uh, this is going to sound way too trite, but I'm going to end with it anyway. Vote. I mean, I, I expect that almost all of your listeners are voting. 
get, get oh, they're definitely get, get, you know, but get their families, their neighbors, their friends, um, get them out there to vote. Um, high turnout is an antidote to fringe activity, um, and on either side, um, because the vast majority of people in in this country are not on the fringe, um, but. The only time that the that over fifty percent of people in the United States vote, I have eligible voters in the United States vote only once every four years in a presidential general election. Um, it is very unlikely we'll have fifty percent of people voting in uh, in twenty twenty two. We came very close to that in twenty eighteen. It was the highest turnout midterm election in a hundred years. Um, but four years before that, we had the lowest turnout That's midterm right. election in a hundred years. Yeah. So um, you know, I, I just really encourage people, whoever you're going to vote for, whichever party you're going to vote for, turn out and vote. And turn out and vote in the primaries. I mean, I think the turnout in the Georgia primary was heartening. Um, I think there were a lot of people who um, really thought about the kind of candidates they want representing them, even if it was, you know, Democrats who might have voted in the Republican primary or Republicans who might have voted in the Democratic primary. You get to choose your ballot in Georgia. So I, I you know— Turn out to vote. Most of the primaries are still coming up. Um, Michigan, Wisconsin are in August, for instance. Uh, Florida is in August. Big so, primary month, August. Yeah. Yeah. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus for a few minutes, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, David? So uh, the Center for Election Innovation and Research is at electioninnovation.org. The Election Official Legal Defense Network is e- at eoldn.org. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm fairly active on Twitter, at Becker David J. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll engage with us in any of those places. And you can also donate to both of those organizations. Yes, you can donate. And you can um, donate generously to both of those organizations. That, that, that would be, of course, wonderful. I, 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 we're, the Center for Election Innovation and Research is a 501c3. We are nonpartisan. Our philosophy is rigorously nonpartisan and bipartisan. And, um, uh, you know, we work with election officials all across the country. So um, hopefully people will do that. But, you know, even even more so, if you're a lawyer, if you know lawyers, if you work at a law firm, um, go onto the EOLDN.org site and volunteer if you can. Ben, where can everybody find you on the internet? Well, through EOLDN.org. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would not claim to be an avid tweeter like David. <laughs> I look forward to all the messages going into EOLDN.org. Fair enough. We will talk to you soon. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.